invite you to be turning to Luke chapter 22, in verses 66 through 71, kind of. <laughs> Last week we, we began a series related to the Easter season. I felt like the Lord lay on my heart that there were four gospel accounts. We're going to look at them for four sermons. And I was looked to look at four episodes within Jesus' final moments, but we say final, but hopefully we know he resurrected, so not really his final moments. And the first episode we looked at last week was with the Gospel of Mark, and we looked at the arrest of Jesus and how everyone deserted him and fled. After this arrest, this week we're looking at the trial. Now, there are actually a few trials that Jesus endures as you look at the gospel accounts, but I chose this uh, trial, and I chose this scene written by Luke, because even though Matthew comes really close in his parallel telling, the way Luke writes this really sets out and uh, apart for us a simple fact that as far as the Jews are concerned, Jesus is guilty because he claims to be God. So, I invite you to stand for the reading of the Lord's Word. I hope you'll uh, see and hear it for yourself, this accusation. Let's just take a look at verses 66 through 71. We read together, At uh, daybreak the councils of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and scribes, met together. They led Jesus into their Sanhedrin and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they declared. We have heard it from ourselves, for ourselves, from his own lips. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, engage with this doctrine of you being fully man and fully God, I pray you would give us a deep appreciation for that truth. Father, we need you, Lord Jesus, to be both man and God, to be a perfect mediator. So help us to be engaged in this doctrine, to learn from your feet. Lord Jesus, we pray that uh, I would be moved aside and your voice would be heard. Holy Spirit, have your way in our hearts and minds this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've been here for any amount of time... I think you know that, or, or perceive that I'm usually a verse-by-verse verse exegetical preacher. So far as I, I've gone through these texts for these sermon series, though, I feel really like God has highlighted certain lines from these scenes we're looking at to just explore some topics more. So it's hard for me as a, you know, to break from my normal habit. So last week, while we did mosey around the text, there was an intense unpacking of an uplifting topic called God's wrath <laughs> and how we aren't recipients of that wrath if we're in Christ. And so today, 
I will come back to this text we just read, but that's not going to be near the end. And so if you're like wondering, let's get back to that text. Well, now you know you can expect it near the end. I I feel the Lord compelled, compelled me to look at the doctrine of the deity of Christ. So that's what we're going to do. First of all, I'll think about this. A teacher, a preacher full of love and and compassion and kindness. He listens to people. He heals people. And he teaches with authority. For some, he makes complete sense. For others, they got to think about it. And then still for others, like the people interrogating Jesus in our passage, they don't get it. Nor it seems do they want to get it. <laughs> but for the most part, people flock to him. He, see, he seems genuinely a good man. Maybe even better than a good man. But God? Really? God? And this is a hurdle for many. <laughs> it apparently was a hurdle for Thomas Jefferson. He produced what is called the Jefferson Bible. And the subtitle was The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a, it's a chronological presentation of the Gospel, but it is devoid of the supernatural and the miraculous. You know, I, I've heard of it before. I never really looked into it, but as I was preparing for this sermon, I just got a little sidetracked and I found access to it online. And so, for example, Jefferson picked the passages about Jesus' baptism. And all we get about Jesus' baptism, he had it in the King James, but I'll put it in uh, the BSB. And Matthew 3.13 says, At that time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Just that little excerpt. <laughs> no... No verses about the Holy Spirit descending. No verse about the voice of God. Now, this wasn't really sneaky on behalf of Jefferson. He openly claimed that it was a Bible or a book just about Jesus' life and teachings. Now, the point was made, though. Je Jefferson either didn't see the value or maybe he didn't believe that when it came to Jesus, let's just not broadcast the supernatural stuff. And this is the hang-up for many people. Many people will say, Jesus, a good moral teacher, great guy. He loved the people. He served them well. He's very compassionate. He's a good moral teacher. But then the connection is either never made or never expressed that he also must have been a pathological liar too. This is to be believed if somebody can't come to grips with his claiming to be God. C.S. Lewis rightly ascertained that either Jesus is the Son of God or a madman, or worse. But his being just a great teacher, he's not left that option to us. Now, it's, it's understandable to question it, to, to have a, a hesitancy. I mean, imagine being in the situation with him. It's hard to imagine someone you and I know to see daily and routinely walking around, and we might say to ourselves, I like his teaching, right? I like... His story, I, I love seeing his miracles, but then every now and then he says things that I just don't know what to do with. See, your father Abraham rejoiced, Jesus said once to some Pharisees, some Bible students and teachers. Probably knew the Bible better than I did, and they knew it in the original languages. Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What do you think about, what do you do with that? <laughs> do I just 
Did I just hear him right? That's not normal. It's not logical. Hence, verse 57, Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Like, this isn't even a normal question, a normal thought process, but perhaps the quickest question they could propose to to match up with what he just said. I mean, how do we even attack this? Abraham saw his day. How old are you, Jesus? You do realize Abraham existed thousands of years ago. We're talking about Father Abraham of the Jews. Truly, truly, I tell you, Jesus declared, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus knows what he's talking about. They have the right Abraham. And not even, not even did Abraham see his day, Jesus says, before Abraham. Before Abraham was even born, I am. That's what Yahweh means. Did you know that? That Yahweh said to Moses in the burning bush, give them the name Yahweh. Give them the name I am. And this is purposeful. It's a declaration of authority and self-existence on part of God. I mean, all the other gods had cool names. Ra, Pan, Molech, Baal. Kind of like Dodge, Chevy, Ford. And... But Moses says, in essence, okay, Lord, I'm going to the most powerful empire on earth. They have a huge pantheon of gods. Pharaoh himself claims to be a god. How do I even begin to show any authority? Who do I tell them who sent me on a suicide mission? A bush? The bush I met in the desert says, release his people. God says, tell them I am sent you. Right? I don't even need a name. All those other totem poles and statues need names. I just am. I don't need a stick to show people that I exist. I already know I exist. Jesus hijacks that statement. Well, I say hijack, not really, because he is the same being who spoke to Moses out of the bush. But for his hearers who are seeing flesh and blood, no halo around the head, no radioactive glowing skin, but a Jewish man in front of their faces, it sounds like, here's a nut job. (laughs) But is he really? Because he makes sense about some things for the most part, and he carries on coherent conversations, and he has followers, but here he is saying, Abraham, good guy, he liked me too. You know, I've been watching, again, the Chosen series. It takes liberties about backstories. I don't think it ever contradicts the Bible, but it it adds in those backstories. What if this was, you know, Peter's story? What if this was Matthew's story? What if this was Mary Magdalene's story and so forth? But it shows us the possibilities of an everyday Jesus. You know, where we just get the greatest hits in the gospel accounts. Of course, it's this series shows us the miracles. It shows us, you know, all the authoritative teachings. But have we really wrestled with the people around Jesus who wrestled with these claims of deity? Many of us take it as a matter of faith, and we seem to say without much consequence, yes, Jesus is God. Meanwhile, there are entire sects of people who call themselves Christian, but they diminish, if not negate or reject that Jesus is God. Now, Because of my own understanding of Scripture, I think I might be a little bit more freer, a bit more content 
than other people who are, when it comes to matters of faith, on what makes you a Christian? What things do you need to believe? Um, for instance, t- speaking about the chosen, I-, I-, I recently actually read a headline from some conservative Baptist preacher of why I won't watch the chosen. And I didn't read the article, but I just said to myself, this will be showing of your pastor, wow, what a waste of time. Wow, what a battle to fight. There are some hills that pastors, preachers, and Christians just love to die on. Now, I've watched The Chosen myself, and I don't know, you be the judge, but I'd like to think it's only enriched my faith. Uh, It's not done anything bad to it, but maybe whenever Jesus is portrayed, he should only talk like a King James Bible. I don't know what the issue is. All this to say, I think I might be even more freer on what I believe persons need to do to be saved. But I'm just going to start my analysis here from the Scriptures. Let's look at a descriptive example, and then let's look at what appears to be a prescriptive example. Descriptive, just describing an event. Prescriptive, wow, that probably has some binding on what I'm doing today. But for the descriptive example, Quakers who have historically have non-physical views on baptism in communion, be sure to come out this Friday for the communion service, um, love this passage about the thief on the cross with Jesus rebuking the other criminal. Uh, We read that thief saying, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same judgment? We are punished justly, for we are receiving what our actions deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me. Some old manuscripts will add, Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is a pretty vague confession of faith. And it's a pretty weighty declaration on behalf of Christ over this man, right? Like, we knew, we know that this man wasn't offered communion. Well, you say you like me. Here are the elements. <laughs> this man wasn't baptized. As far as we know, he never attended church or synagogue. And did you hear that? He said, this man, man, has done nothing wrong. Now, did he know or expect that Jesus was a man and and only a man and not the Son of God? Indeed, for the most part, he never heard the gospel. However, I would say, whenever you're there to witness firsthand Christ on the cross, you've been witnessed to. (laughs) Even so, you know, I don't know if Jesus, the righteous judge, Granting him salvation in those moments is a place where everyone should look to and say, how can I follow this man's lead? How do I get to heaven? Now, of course, there are some things we can garner. But in principle, I don't know if we can look at this thief on the cross and say, follow his lead, because he was on his way out. Uh, Peter and the disciples and Paul certainly didn't follow this man's lead to a, uh, a T. They were saved well before their deaths, and they showed a lot of fruit in their salvation. But then we might look to, what does Paul say? Paul seems to lay it out rather similarly and in a prescriptive text, something that should have binding on us for today. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, uh, you know, this is a verse that Calvin already knows. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart you believe and are justified, and with your mouth you confess and are saved. Now, again, 
We don't see a lot of things in this text that many throughout church history and, and even today across the board expect. Maybe they don't think about it, but we don't see baptism. We don't see communion. We don't even see going to church every Sunday. Can't wait to see you guys all next Sunday. Um, but I wonder if we approach these texts and other texts like these, and if we approach it with the question, what are the necessities for salvation? Then we approach them with the wrong heart. We approach them like the Pharisees. We approach them like the rich young ruler. That was his question. What must I do to be saved or, you know, inherit eternal life? The Pharisees, the rich young ruler, all the questions were rather self-centered. How do I save my bacon? Perhaps a bad illustration for a Jewish context, but what can I not get away with if I still want to be in your good graces, Lord? So when it comes to baptism, communion, or even beliefs surrounding Christ's deity, do I think that one must know Jesus as deity to be a true converted Christian to be saved? Let me put it to you this way. Suppose Calvin came to a certain age and heaven forbid a wedge came between us and he started calling me Kevin. And, you know, somebody else might ask him, sure, he'd say, yeah, that's, that's my father. But when addressing me, he, I was Kevin. Even just that slight name change would suggest distance, would suggest he doesn't want to refer to me as dad if he doesn't have to. These sorts of questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At that moment, the faith or the person's perspective or belief about what faith in Christ suddenly doesn't center on Christ, it centers on an objective. How do I inherit eternal life? How am I saved? If faith is centered on an objective and not Christ, one misses the point of Christianity entirely. That is more significant. What is more significant, I would venture, is Christ. That is more significant than what one should do to inherit eternal life. Let me say it this way. Church, faith, salvation, these are all things with a desired person at its end. Not a desired goal or objective. What we can say about the thief on the cross and about Paul's proclamation of how one is saved is that the thief trusted in Christ. And Paul says it's about trust in Christ that saves people. These aren't supposed to be formulaic prescriptions of salvation. You know, when the prodigal son left, he had it all figured out. He did the math. I'm a son. I inherit this much. I can spend it this way. And I'd rather leave right now and not have to wait until dad dies. I'll just leave with my side of the inheritance. But whenever he returned, sure, he had nothing left to put his hope and trust in. But one thing is he knew who he could trust. One thing he thought he did know is how his father dealt with people. So he returned to the family because he trusted his dad enough that even if he was just re-entering as a servant, his dad would be gracious and compassionate enough to receive him. And of course, the dad did more than that. Do we see the difference to ask, what are the necessities of salvation? I think is a wrong question. I think Christianity, I think Jesus answers, who do I trust? That's the right question. All that to say, the deity of Christ... I feel more comfortable answering it this way, that I believe somebody has a deep-rooted issue that needs addressing 
if they feel able to entrust, God's saving them to a mediator who is in no better of a situation than we are, if he's just fully man. Whenever we speak of authorship in the Bible, do you know what is likely the oldest penned book in the Bible? Anybody? Job. Job. I know you're all Quakers, but be Pentecostal for a little bit. Job was written before Moses, who wrote Genesis and the first five books of the Bible. And the story of Job, as all of Scripture seems to point to, is a story for the need of Jesus. Job is under attack, or so it feels like. He's lost everything. He's suffering. And all of his friends, who are schmucks like me, because we're educated in the Bible, think we know God and have all the answers. But Job's smarter than that. And and there is this climactic point, I would say, early on in the book, chapter 9, because it's many chapters, but Job says, For he, referring to God, is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court, nor is there a mediator between us to lay his hand upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me so that his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak without fear of him, but as it is, I am on my own. Do you hear what Job is saying here? Now, I mean, God demonstrates it near the end of the book, right? Who hung the stars? Who brings the lightning down? All that stuff. But there is this wide chasm between God and man. I'm going to give you an illustration quite literally. This picture has just caught my attention lately. You know what that is? It's a high-res picture of Pluto that one of our space probes went out to take up. The planet, excuse me, dwarf planet. (laughs) Long live Pluto's planethood. Any case, I've been putting it on my screens. Primarily, I just like it, but it also, it it super shocks me that not only do we fragile little human beings who apparently can't biologically define what a man or a woman is, but, I had to fit that in there, but (laughs) we have it within our creative and intelligent capacities to send a probe that far into space. New Horizons, the name of the probe, launched in 2006. It finally flew by Pluto in 2015. It was flying in space for nine years. It's still flying in space because it's not coming back, but its closest approach to Pluto was in July of 2015. It took these pictures. What further shocks me, and I haven't done the research, is somehow we have the capacity to even transmit or send these pictures over a nine-year distance travel time. By way, by, by the way, the average speed of New Horizons was 10.10 miles a second. I did a little bit of math for you. There is 86,400 seconds in a day, which we times that by 10 means this probe was traveling over 864,000 miles a day for nine years to get to Pluto. So not only am I baffled, but what we've managed to do to take these pictures, I'm also baffled that an almighty God, creator of the universe, who has not only made this planet, but the whole universe, largely which is undiscovered by us, with all these amazingly beautiful, spectacular to look at celestial bodies that nobody can currently adore except for God, and maybe those who are dead and with him, just because he can That's a really nice planet. I'm going to look at it. Too bad all you earthlings don't get to see it. (laughs) Pluto's been flying around, rotating as long as the universe has been around, looking like this. And for a month in 2015, we got a few pictures of it. 
My point is this, is that the very being who made Pluto, the universe, galaxies galore, how in the world does a human being on the tiny blip of Earth... Here's another picture for you. This is the pale blue dot picture taken a little bit past Neptune. I don't, you can't even see it, but that, that's not dust. That's, that's, that's Earth right there. How does a tiny being from that little pale blue dot even begin to talk to God? Hey God, universe maker, the one who made Pluto, you know, and I know I'm just in that tiny blue dot and smaller than that dot and you made all those galaxies out there, but I got a bone to pick with you. <laughs> like, I'm suffering here. Here's my point. It seems rather illogical to me to say we put our faith in this man on the cross who is innocently simply because he's innocent. Like, he's got to have a deeper, more bigger connection with God than just that. To even claim Jesus as innocent and as pure and sinless without fault and blame, that is beginning, though, to deify him because by the very word of God's own admission, no human being was without sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And that was also said by David in Psalm 14 before Paul echoed it. To just demonstrate the universality of sin. No one, absolutely no one is the exception from this judgment of humanity except, it seems, Jesus. That is the exception. Paul would call Jesus and faith in him the righteousness of God in that same chapter. The very righteousness of God, 321. Luke, we started in the book of Luke, when Jesus' birth is announced. To put it a little more crassly, Mary basically asked the angel, I'm pregnant, this is news to me. Uh, who's the father? I would probably remember a night like that. I'm pregnant. The angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Father is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is literally the Son of God. How how does this happen? What does this mean? Presumably, and I think we have no reason to not believe Jesus, the, the Son of God, is being entrusted into the bodily care of Mary, not to get too graphic, but in a womb within her body, nurtured and fed as any body is done. So by their pregnant mother entered into the world like any baby is. Paul puts it this way, memorably in Philippians 2, that Christ Jesus is existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. I like that alternative. But emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Fully God, fully man, he has to be both if we trust in him to be our salvation. If we trust in him to be a suitable mediator between God and man, he needs to be a representative of both sides, God and man. And if we trust in Jesus, we trust in the Jesus who wasn't afraid to say statements that uh, deified him. He wasn't afraid to receive worship. You know, while John records deifying statements all over the 
place, stuff like before Abraham was, I am. Matthew records moments where Jesus is worshipped and he doesn't stop people from worshipping him. Like C.S. Lewis said, either he is who he says he is or he's a, a madman. Now, when Jesus is walking on the water, now there's something I haven't seen before or since. Peter gets out and walks on the water. He starts sinking. Jesus reaches down, takes both Peter and himself back to the boat, and Matthew records, and when they had climbed back into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The Son of God. The Holy Spirit is the Father. And then just to confuse you more, Jesus says things like, I and the Father are one. I've used this illustration before. If you're the son of a dog, you're a dog. If you're the son of a human, you're a human. If you're the son of God. Well, this isn't a separate category. This isn't, well, there is a race of gods, and then there's a race of half gods and half mans. No. Jesus professed the Shema here. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul affirms in 1 Timothy 1.17 that that very weird Paul that we can be skeptical about, is he part of the, the faith? He says that God is the only God. So, there is this confusion, that the strong convictions meets undeniable realities. Here is a, a rabbi, a teacher, a man who is teaching historic faith directly from God, but at the same time is undeniably accepting worship and deifying himself with proclamations. And so we come back to this scene, we come to this trial. Look at with me in verses uh, 66 through 68 again of Luke 22, and we see at daybreak the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes met together. They led Jesus into their Sanhedrin and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer. Because that makes sense. Now, here's what we need to know. I think the the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling council among Jews, was just interested in anything to damn him, anything to execute him. Anything to be done and be rid of him. Was his claiming to be God a big issue in their minds? Certainly. Was it offensive? Yes. But everything about Jesus seemed to offend them. His views on the Sabbath, his garnering popularity with the masses, his telling the truth and openly criticizing religious stuck-up types like themselves. Everything about Jesus was just offensive to them. And we have this line, this, here's the trap we're setting for you. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now the Christ, the Messiah, Messiah is is Hebrew for Christ. Uh, Christ is the Greek term. It's just a difference of language between those two. And the English kind of comes out to say it just means the anointed one. And in the Jewish mind, this was a figure where the Jews felt like they had the blueprint on. If I can liken it to our day, everyone has their thoughts about the Antichrist. And there's this popular belief that the Antichrist will be a future world leader promising to to bring peace at the expense of religious persecution. It's a popular belief that I happen to disagree with, but that's a whole other sermon. But the idea of the Messiah probably had more uniform agreement among the Jews. He's going to be one like King David. He's going to restore power to Israel and free Israel from their captors whenever he showed up. And Jesus was in the time of Rome's captivity. And we just talked about the triumphal entry. You know what Hosanna means? Save us now. (laughs) And so that's what they believe. Here's the Messiah. Save us now. Save us from Rome. 
<clears throat> so, it's a loaded question because they're asking Jesus, do you think yourself to be a king like David? Are you about to rally our people? Are you about to throw off Rome? Because they don't like him, and they'll be the first to introduce him as such to the Romans. Oh, he claimed to be the Messiah. He's just going to start a war with you here in a little while. And if Jesus said no to this claim, the Sanhedrin would then have cause for his entire ministry to be invalidated because people are already starting to call him the Messiah. Because here's a man who led people on if he's not. But what did Jesus say? He has this cryptic answer, right? If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I give, ask you a question, you will not answer. Do you ever have those conversations or know those people? There's just no right answer. The only way you'll make them happy is if you fall off the face of the earth, it feels like. And Jesus is basically saying, who are we kidding here? You're not looking for an answer. You're not looking for dialogue. You're just looking for anything to incriminate with me, incriminate me with. You know, Jesus had a similar conversation back in Luke 20. If you want to go back there real quick, it says in Luke 20 verses 1 uh, through 8, one day, as Jesus was, was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the gospel, the chief priests and scribes, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, they said, by who, what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? I'm give you a contemporary illustration real quick. This is as if some denominational leader was coming to a pastor saying, hey, where are your credentials? <laughs> who signed off leaving you uh, to preach and have authority to do the things you do? This is the... Kind of the same nugget they're, they're trying at his trial. They want him to confess to being the Messiah there, but back at the temple, they just want uh, him to reveal likely what they already know. He's from Podunk, Nazareth. He doesn't have any credentials. He's never had any training from any Pharisee or scribe. He's not got any education. Uh, he'll just answer with the God card, which would sound a little racky or presumptuous. God ordained me directly. But Jesus sidesteps and we read... I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They deliberated among themselves and say, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Huh. Either way they answer, they're incriminated. How do they like it? Puts them in the same pickle Jesus was in. They didn't like John, they didn't like Jesus, but the people like John and the people like Jesus, so what do they do? So they answered that they did not know where it was from. They are lawyers. <clears throat> and Jesus replied, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. It's kind of a pearls before swine thing. You know, I'm reminded of Jesus' chat with another Pharisee who was more open to correction and guidance. What does he say to Nicodemus? You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? Right? They're supposed to be Israel's teachers and leaders, but John the Baptist, I have no idea if he's legit or not. He's just calling people to true repentance. He's telling them to live holy lives. You know, does that match up with Torah? Is that what God really wants? When we come back to this trial here, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer. It's as if Jesus is tired then of all these word wars and he's tired of dancing around the subject. So he comes out with it. In fact, he's somebody more than just the Messiah. We, we read in verse 69, but from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And this is actually a title of judgment. Matthew, whenever he records the line, he says it a bit 
differently. He says, but I say to you from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Coming on the clouds of heaven. These are Jewish phrases. And within this sentence, Jesus is claiming a greater identity than just the Messiah. He calls himself the son of man. This comes from Daniel 7 where we read, And I saw one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given dominion, glory, and kingship that the people of every nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Sanhedrin, the judges over all of Israel at the time, you may think you're judging little old me, but you're trying to judge he who is judge over you. And furthermore, this coming on the clouds of heaven is indeed a term of judgment. That phrase at the right hand of God, it's a phrase like Psalm 110, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, I mean, he's not saying it this way, but go ahead and get down. I need a place to rest my feet. (laughs) Sanhedrin. Sitting at the right hand of God, being in a place of judgment, being the Son of Man, as Daniel said it, these are implications that are not lost on Jesus' hearers. And suddenly they think they hit the jackpot because now they have something a little more severe that they can judge him on. So they all asked, are you then the Son of God? Because this is a separate identity from the Messiah. This is if, again, you're the son of a dog, you're a dog. Man, you're a man. God, you are God. You're of the same stuff. He replied, you say that I am. Now, many think that this is a Hebrew or Greek way of affirmation. We have a similar phrase. It's when someone says, you said it, not me. Right? As in, I was thinking that. I was affirming that. I just didn't want to be the one to voice it or affirm it. So you said it. Kind of like that. But Jesus is saying, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony? They declared, we have heard it from our, we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And if you're reading Luke, the Sanhedrin, apparently at gassed at his claiming to be God, leads him away and tries to sell him to Caesar as the Messiah who would try to come against Rome. But here it is, the Sanhedrin, they condemn him not for the Messiah bit so much as his claiming to be God. In fact, earlier in Jesus' ministry, John would record a general upset that that was had with him. It says, because of this, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So I want you to hear this, this historical verdict, the very reason that Jesus of Nazareth, who hardly anybody doubts that he lives. People doubt what he said, who he really was, but nobody doubts that the historical Jesus of Nazareth existed. And the very reason, the documented historical reason as to why Jesus was condemned to death by his own people is right here. He claimed to be God. As far as that accusation goes, he is guilty. 100% guilty. You caught him. He's God. And he's given to Pilate. Pilate has him flogged, crucified. And he's up on that cross and expires and the temple is torn in two and Darkness covers the land and an earthquake happens. And while his own Jewish leaders have him executed for blasphemy, 
At sight of all these signs, a Roman centurion exclaims, Truly this man was the Son of God. And he died, and he rose from the grave proving that he is God. He was sinless. He was guilty of being God, but he wasn't guilty. It was the same God who made Pluto and our small tiny little planet that walked the earth, that breathed the air that we breathed, that saw the sun rising and setting from our perspective. It was and it is God that who lives and rules and reigns today and He is our mediator. What does that mean practically? That means the suffering that Job endured and the sufferings that you and I endure, God truly gets. God truly gets. God, you can't get me. You haven't been here. Try that again. (laughs) Our God has been tempted as we are with the sins we face. Our God has suffered like we've suffered. Our God has been betrayed like we've been betrayed. Our God has faced persecution like we face persecution. Our God was unpopular. We've been unpopular. Our God has felt the sting of broken families and brothers who didn't believe Him. And so whenever you or I come to God with all of our problems... All of our experiences, we truly have a God who says, I've been there. I do know how that feels, and I do sympathize. And we have a true mediator, one who is fully man and one who is fully God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, sometimes there are things in faith that we take for granted. And sometimes we look at other groups of people, people who call themselves Christian, and, well, it's so weird that you can't believe it that way. And But we truly understand why it can be believed. It's hard to take a person that we see in the flesh and blood talking. What do we do when they say statements that that sounds like they're saying they're God? But truly, Lord Jesus, you are fully man and fully God. And we thank you that you are. We thank you that you came and you walked and experienced the things we experience. We thank you that you willingly, voluntarily suffered like we talked about last week. You were the one who had the authority to lay down your life. And you did it. You suffered extreme pain. You felt the pain and sting of betrayal. All these disciples that left and fled you in your hour of need. Thank you, Lord Jesus, though, that you didn't finish there, that you rose again, that you proved that you were sinless, and then you also proved that you were God. Father, thank you that you are 100% guilty of being God, and uh, thank you that we can entrust our own problems and lives to you. So we do submit to you today. We trust in you. We thank you for all you do. Thank you that you took our sins, and thank you that we can walk with you in faith, Um, Father, we pray that we would use this message in our hearts and lives this next week and then in the coming months. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.